Standby playback. And now, Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, we're going to make that very easy for you. I want to talk about a few things that are going on right now. One of them is Donald Trump's record-breaking victories in Iowa at the caucuses and in New Hampshire at the presidential primary. We have more caucuses coming up in the state of Nevada. We've got the next primary coming up in South Carolina. And Nikki Haley is hanging in there for right now. But I will tell you this. One of her largest donors, the guy who founded LinkedIn, so he's got a lot of money, uh, maybe not as much common sense because he was giving a lot of money to the efforts to get Nikki Haley to come in and bump Donald Trump out of the way. Didn't work out so well in Iowa. Didn't work out so well in New Hampshire. I have a feeling it's not going to work out well in South Carolina. So uh, she has already lost him. Now, does that mean she'll lose the rest of her big money donors? I think at some point, even the big money types, the establishment Republicans who say, we want to get a rhino like Nikki Haley to be the nominee, and we don't care if she loses to Joe Biden. We also don't care if she wins, because either way, the big money guys win. That's what the establishment Republicans want. Those of us who want Donald Trump in want a president who will go in and start dismantling the deep state, the bureaucracy that is now making the majority of the objectionable decisions that affect your life and my life so very much. If you want to make those decisions, have them made by the people's representatives. And if we're not happy with those decisions, we can vote them out. When bureaucrats make those decisions, we can't vote them out. We don't, in most cases, you don't even know the names of the people who are doing you dirty from the EPA and the ATF and every other one of those federal bureaucracies. That is the deep state that Donald Trump has been warning about going all the way back to 2015. But let me mention this. Almost every network news I saw was talking about Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. Oh, fine. She's not my favorite candidate. Donald Trump is. So I've got a bias when it comes to this. But consider this. You've got Nikki Haley, who just recently had this huge infusion of cash from mostly wealthy donors who said, we want you to go in and get in Donald Trump's way. And how did that work out? Well, she finished third out of three in Iowa. She finished second out of two in New Hampshire, and she missed in New Hampshire by about 12 percentage points when actual Americans uh, cast actual ballots in the race. She lost to Donald Trump by 12 percentage points, so it didn't work out so well. Donald Trump, on the other hand, set brand new records. His victory in Iowa in the Iowa Coxes was a record finish for a presidential campaign. And in New Hampshire, he received the most votes ever received in a New Hampshire presidential primary. Now, those are records worth talking about. But you see, if the mainstream legacy media, if they talked about how well Donald Trump is doing and consider that he's doing well in an environment where who's attacking him? 
big money Republican donors, the Democrat Party, the president of the United States, the mainstream media and most of the left in America. But he's also getting a certain amount of attacks that are coming from within the Republican Party. So if if you take that into account, he's doing extraordinarily well. And then consider this. I want to play a couple of sound bites. So I'm going to ask producer Joel to play these because here's something the Democrats are doing. And I can't exactly criticize it because the late Rush Limbaugh, who I only met a couple of times, I didn't know him. I, I couldn't claim to have known him. I wish I, I wish I had been able uh, to sit down to a meal with, uh, with Rush Limbaugh. But the late Rush Limbaugh had an idea he had uh, called Operation Chaos. It is legal. Uh, you could question whether it's ethical, but I think if, if it's legal under the rules, then you're allowed to do it. And here's the basic idea. If you're in a state where they have a primary election and you really, really want to beat the other guy or gal, then what you do is you change your party registration from Republican to Democrat. You vote for the weakest Democrat. In this case, it would be Joe Biden, but he's already the odds on favorite to be the nominee. Um, and, and the Democrats don't seem to care that he's demented and seems incapable of holding the office he currently holds, let alone doing the job for another four years. But the theory goes in any conventional election, in regular times, these are not regular times, folks, in case you hadn't noticed, that in regular times, you change your party registration to the other party, you vote for the weakest candidate, then before the general election, you re-register in the party you actually prefer, and then you vote for Joe Biden in this case. So there were a whole bunch of Democrats who did exactly this, and they made it very, very clear Let's play first the undeclared Democrat and what he had to say about why he cast a ballot on Tuesday for Nikki Haley. And why did you vote for Nikki Haley? Uh, it's a vote against Trump. Uh, I think it would be better to have her against Biden in the uh, elections than it would be Trump and her. Do you consider yourself generally independent, Republican or Democrat? Uh, Democrat. So when you undeclared you voted for Nikki Haley. If it was Nikki Haley against Joe Biden in a general election, who are you voting for? Joe Biden. So in other words, these are Democrats who are admitting to themselves, my candidate is a weak candidate, Joe Biden. So what I need to do is go out and find somebody like Nikki Haley, who's even weaker than Joe Biden. And I would argue that as a claimed Republican she is a weak, weak candidate. She has so many deficits, and we've talked about them on the show before. I understand I'm a Trump partisan, and you might hold that against me, but I would say Nikki Haley has so many things wrong with her campaign and her positions on the issues that we've talked about that she is a weak Republican candidate. So you've got Democrats admitting out loud, my candidate, Joe Biden, this is what they're saying, can't beat Donald Trump. So We'll see if we can get Nikki Haley to instead be the candidate, because then Joe Biden can beat the weaker candidate. And you end up with Joe Biden, who you've already admitted is a is an uh, is a weak candidate for president. Listen to the second soundbite, too, please. I voted for Nikki Haley, and it was certainly a strategic vote. Um, I think the DNC is fairly resolute in their nomination for Joe Biden. Uh, and while I wouldn't vote for her in a general election, particularly on our differences with uh, climate change solution, a woman's right to bodily autonomy, or uh, incarceration rates, I think a vote for Nikki Haley is, helps diminish Trump's influence in the RNC and their nomination, but is also a vote towards democracy. A vote toward democracy. In other words, here's a Democrat whose own party 
party has been doing everything it can to sabotage the other candidate. They're not just running out and telling Americans, hey, by the way, we think we have the best ideas for America. Because all you have to do is look around the landscape of America right now and say, are we in more wars or fewer wars than we were three years ago? Well, that would be more. Are we in better financial shape or worse than we were three years ago? Well, let's see. The economy stinks right now. Gas prices are high. Rent's high. Food's high. We're in worse shape. Oh, and mortgage rates, they're more than 200 percent are 100% higher, they are 200% of what they were on the day Joe Biden took office. Oh, and we're in a bunch of foreign conflicts and we may even end up at war with China, but they want Joe Biden back? If any of you can figure that out and you want to be a naysayer, I'd be glad to take the call. Coming up in just a moment, the, we've talked before about the Chevron Doctrine. Currently, the Supreme Court is deciding whether or not to overturn it, and we'll talk about what that means for the way that our government is going to words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'm fascinated by what the Supreme Court might do and what I think they're going to do with the so-called Chevron Doctrine. And no, it doesn't have to do with gasoline specifically. It has to do with a doctrine of the courts that says, Whenever Congress creates an agency, and Jim Burling will be happy to correct me if I'm wrong about this, uh, that once the agency is up and operating, if they go out and do a bunch of crazy stuff and then somebody sues the agency and says, you can't do that to us, that the courts generally, uh, you know, will side on the side of the agency and say, uh, they were created by Congress. They're probably right. Uh, well, now it, it appears to me that the Supreme Court may be getting ready to overturn that 40-year-old doctrine. So, on that note, Jim Burling joins us, Vice President of Legal Affairs at Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, how are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. Did, did I screw up that description of the Chevron doctrine? I realize I, I didn't use as many billable hours or as many legalistic terms in there, but but I, I, I tried to come as close as I could. You, you, came, you came pretty close. I mean, the question is, if there is an ambiguity in a federal statute, a federal law that directs a federal agency to do X, Y, and Z, to protect the environment, to regulate commerce, or whatever it might be, if Congress doesn't spell out in detail what exactly should be done, the agency has to fill in the blanks. And so the question comes, well, what if an agency starts freelancing and fills in blanks that really aren't blanks, where there really isn't ambiguity, or where Congress says absolutely nothing and the agency starts making stuff up? And that's what the Chevron Doctrine is all about. It is giving the agencies the ability to come up with rules and regulations that really aren't grounded in statute. And that's what the court was wrestling with in these cases that it argued last, were argued before it last week, dealing with some fishing boats and some fishing companies. Well, and let me ask you this, because in that specific case, as I understand the case, uh, the agency, uh, National Marine Fisheries, said we've got to have monitors on all these fishing boats. And Congress never told us we couldn't charge the cost of having people on the boats to keep an eye on how much fish was being caught and whether or not the fishermen were operating legally or not. 
They didn't say we couldn't charge them, so we're just going to charge all the people who own the fishing boats for the cost of putting the monitors, the people, on the boat to keep an eye on them. If Congress doesn't tell an agency, you can't do this, I mean, is Congress going to have start writing laws saying, this is what your job is, and these are all the things you're not allowed to do? And if they don't do that, the agency can just go ahead and say, well, they didn't tell us we couldn't do it, so we must be able to do it. Yeah, and that's how agencies have been acting in this particular case. Congress did pass a law saying that fishing boats should have monitors on them to make sure you're catching fish of the right size in the right place at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for big, big fishing boats, it's not that big of a deal, perhaps, but we're talking about herring fishermen in the East Coast. And it was, and the pay for these monitors, it's roughly 20% of their operating expenses. And that's huge. Uh, And they were saying, look, unless Congress specifically gave you the authority to charge us for that, we shouldn't have to pay for that. And when it got up to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals said, well, under the Chevron doctrine, that's 40 years old now, we have to defer to the agency's judgment. And therefore, you fishing boats have to pay, even if it's 20 percent of your operating expenses, even if Congress didn't give the agency, National Marine Fisheries Service, the authority to do that, we have to defer to the agency. And that's just gotten a little too far. And I think the court was very skeptical of the arguments of the administration uh, and how far the Chevron doctrine has, has gone from where it was originally intended. Do you think 40 years ago the courts anticipated if we tell them we're just going to assume the agency is right and the people suing them are wrong unless the Congress has told them not to do something that they went ahead and did, uh, that if we do that, agencies are going to take that kind of license and go nuts with it? Now, I don't think anybody anticipated that. What happened 40 years ago is that the the EPA came up with clean air regulations and how you define how big a plant is and what parts can be regulated, what parts can't. Right. And uh, the National Resources Defense Council sued the EPA and saying those regulations aren't good enough. Uh, we would prefer something else. And the court stepped in, this time a, a lower court stepped in and said, nah, we think the regulation should say X, Y, and Z. Essentially, the court was making up the regulations. And that's when the Supreme Court came down and said, no, uh, Lower courts, you can't make up regulations. You have to defer to the agencies if the agency comes up with what seems to be a reasonable regulation. So the Chevron doctrine at the time it came down seemed to make sense. But what's happened is the federal agencies have taken that doctrine and run with it well beyond any playing field that the Supreme Court anticipated. And they took it you know, well beyond the end zone. They took it out to the next field, the next state <laughs> over. And they're starting to use it, saying, hey, we can get away with anything and courts have to defer to us. And I think there's been increasing pushback. And this time the court seemed to be saying, "Okay, that's enough, guys. I'm talking to Jim Burling from Pacific Legal Foundation. So uh, you would you agree with my conclusion? I'm the non-lawyer in the conversation here. But would you agree with me that based on the questions the justices were asking when they heard this case, that they seem to be leaning in the direction of gutting Chevron or overturning Chevron? Yeah. I, I think they're in, they're leaning towards certainly limiting the doctrine. We don't know about totally gutting it and completely giving the power to make regulations back to the courts the way it was before Chevron. 
So there's going to probably be some middle ground. You look at the arguments, the liberals, that is, Justices Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan, were very much in favor of the status quo, maybe a little tweak here and there. Uh, but the more conservative justices uh, seemed to be quite skeptical of the argument that Chevron should be maintained. And especially it was interesting to hear Justice Gorsuch at one time. You know, he talked about the fact that the Chevron doctrine really, what it does more than anything else, it, it hurts immigrants, veterans seeking benefits and Social Security claimants because they're the ones that can't keep up with the ever-changing regulations that seem to change every few years. And of course, Justice Gorsuch has an interesting history because his mother was head of the EPA during the Reagan administration. He was certainly familiar as a young man of what his mother was going through dealing with uh, government agencies and the courts as well. Hey, Jim, would you mind if I pick your brain on one other legal matter? And, and I won't make it anything right too ahead. crazy. So the Supreme Court says, all right, Customs and Border Protection, you can cut all that razor wire that Texas put up. And, and apparently they're doing exactly that. And Texas, having been told CBP can cut it, said, yes, but you didn't tell us we couldn't put up more. And apparently as of today, they're putting up a lot more razor wire. I want to know what you think of that. If the Supreme Court says CBP can cut it, uh, you'd, you'd assume that the, the gist of that is we don't want the razor wire. You'll, you know, the CBP can take it down, but they didn't tell Texas you can't put more of it up and they're doing it. Uh, that, that is absolutely amazing because there is a huge jurisdictional battle here. Who can control what? And yes, Texas is being somewhat cute, but I think they got a point uh, that, look, we have to protect our people, our property as well. And at the same time, their authority to involve themselves in immigration issues is somewhat limited by prior Supreme Court precedent. And I think what Texas is doing is really pushing the envelope because they want the Supreme Court to hear this issue again and to give the states more power. So okay. that's what that Texas is simply trying to push buttons in order to get the courts to take up this case. Now, we're close to the end, less than a minute. But Governor Abbott came out today and said, I'm asserting Texas's right of self-defense. Do states have a right of self-defense in this way? Well, states are entities that traditionally can defend themselves. They can have their own militias and things of that nature. And the question comes down to whether the federal government has complete plenary power over the border or not. Certainly the Congress gives uh, the United States the power to regulate certain aspects of naturalization, of commerce amongst the states. And the Supreme Court has given great power to the federal government in the past. However, uh, that could be subject to change. Absolutely. That's Jim Burling from Pacific Legal. Jim, thanks. The Lars Larson Show. We tend not to. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. 
these high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Yeah, that's from Reefer Madness about 90 years ago, and I just thought it fit this story so very, very well because I've heard for decades, I don't like pot. I don't use it myself. I'm in a state where it's legal. Okay, that's the decision of the voters. And a lot of states, a number of states in America have made it legal. Do I think it's a good idea? No, I don't. And in fact, I've been warning people that there are great medical studies out there, both from the United States and from Great Britain, that say it sharply increases the incidence of psychosis in people. Now, does that mean that everybody who smokes it, like reefer madness would have you believe, becomes psychotic? No, not at all. But it just increases. So consider this. A California woman, this is from the Daily Mail, California woman who stabbed a man she was dating a hundred times and killed him before then turning the knife on herself and her dog has been handed a hundred hours of community service. Bryn Specker was given the astonishingly low sentence following psychiatrist ruling that the tragedy was 100% caused by cannabis-induced psychosis, which she suffered after taking two hits from a bong. The judge ruled that Spiker experienced a psychotic break from reality and had no control over her actions when she stabbed to death Chad Omila, then 26, on Memorial Day about five years ago. It's taken a long time, almost six years ago, that she did this. She'll spend 100 hours educating others on marijuana-induced psychosis and two years on probation. Now, do I think that her lawyers got her off easy with a fake excuse? Yes, I do. Do I also think that pot does increase the amount of psychosis in in society. Yeah, I believe that as well. And the medical studies back me up. In any case, I thought I'd share that with you. To your calls, and as always, we start with naysayers. Hey, John, welcome to the program. We love naysayers. Um, what's on your mind, and what do you what do you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer? Well, Lars, uh, thanks for taking my call. We disagree about Nikki Haley. Um, as as sort of the first thing, you you call her a, you call her a rhino, and and we can get to that in a minute. But have you seen any polls where Nikki Haley isn't polling better than Joe Biden in theoretical matchups? I've seen a number that say if it was Biden versus Nikki Haley, I've seen polls that indicate Biden would win. I've also seen polls that indicate Haley would do quite well. But I guess that to me isn't the point. The point is. If Donald Trump is the strongest candidate, that's who we're backing. And I back Donald Trump because I think he did great things for America and will do it again. Well, I, I voted for Donald Trump twice in 2016 and 2020, uh, but I had changed my voter registration. When you talked about these guys in New Hampshire that had changed their voter registration from, from Democrat to Republican so they could vote for Nikki Haley, I mean, they're morons. Um, they they don't have any idea of what they're doing there at all. Now, I changed my voter registration from Republican to Democrat in 2016 only because I wanted to be able to vote against Hillary Clinton as many times as possible. So uh, also, being an Oregonian, it became really important to vote for Democrats in primaries and local primaries that weren't absolutely crazy. 
Okay, but so, can you uh, uh, let's get back to Nikki Haley instead of your long history. Just tell me this. What do you think makes her the conservative choice to be the nominee, given that she came in third in Iowa? She came in second to Trump. And by the way, Nikki Haley, from most of the mainstream media, is getting accolades and a lot of promotion from the mainstream media. They seem to want her. In, and and I've, I'll warn you about something, John, that I've seen over the last couple of decades. The mainstream media loved John McCain. I thought he was a terrible candidate. Uh, but when it came to the general, I voted for him because he was the Republican nominee uh, and he was better than the alternative. Uh, they said the same thing about Mittens Romney, you know, who I thought was a terrible rhino Republican. But when he got the nomination, I thought, well, it's him or Obama. I'll vote for Romney. But tell me what you think makes Nikki Haley a great conservative, because I think she's a terrible conservative. Uh, but she's exactly what the establishment rhino, what the establishment wing of the Republican Party seems to want. I don't think we're in disagreement there, uh, Lars. I mean, I think that Trump is definitely more conservative than Nikki Haley, if that's the barometer. I also think that Trump obviously has a dominating lead in the Republican primaries, yep. and, and she's got about yep. a snowball's chance of uh, in, in in the middle of summer of getting of getting to the to the convention and getting the nomination. And why nominate her? Why vote for her? Well. <clears throat> I think on some level, well, first of all, I'd have to change my, my voter registration back to Republican to vote Understood. for. But one of the reasons is, is I think that um, I would, I'm only going to vote for the person, that, for the Republican that I think is more likely to beat Joe Biden in November. And well, I've I seen matchups between Trump and Biden that showed Trump winning. And, and Biden losing. Now, it's not a big spread, but then again, I think there are a bunch of people keeping their powder dry because they think, well, maybe it'll be Trump. But Trump right now has the support of the vast majority of the Republican Party. Why would you think that Nikki Haley, who between Iowa and New Hampshire spent 160, it was $164 million on two states and got third place in Iowa, second place and by 12 points to Trump in New Hampshire after spending 160 some million dollars and Trump spent 31 million dollars? Oh, I, I'm not going to dispute. I'm not going to dispute those facts, um, uh, Lars, because those are facts. So I'm not going to yep. dispute that at all. Um, I don't think that she's necessarily the better candidate. Um, I think that she's going to be palatable to a lot more swing voters. There's no question that Donald Trump is always going to pull better with the Republicans. But you've got to remember, there's only about 30 percent of the country that are registered Republicans and about 30 percent that are registered Democrats. And the rest of these people are just out kind of wandering around like lost sheep politically. Well, the unaffiliateds, though, what do you think the unaffiliateds are seeing around them right now in America? A devastated economy, massive inflation. It's difficult for people to pay their bills. We're getting involved in more and more overseas conflicts that are very expensive in, in money and may end up being expensive in lives. Joe Biden's even warned of that. And his Pentagon guys have said, if you don't give a bunch of money to Ukraine, Americans will die in Ukraine. There will be American blood on the soil. So you really think that independents are going to go, ah, let's have four more years of that. No, no. I think, uh, Lars, I think all of that militates as, as an anti-incumbent vote on the part of swing voters. And I think that um, they're going to that they're looking at that. They're going to vote their pocketbooks. They're going to vote against the recession um, or the inflation that we've just had. Uh, I think I think all of that. I think all that comes into play. I think that's all anti-incumbent stuff that, that's going to play very well with the swing voters. But I think that the other thing will play well with the swing voters is just the um 
if you want to put it this way, the lack of toxicity uh, that that has uh, that Nikki Haley has versus Donald Trump in non-Republican voters. See, I think Nikki Haley is toxic because I would argue one of the biggest front and center issues right now is this massive invasion of illegal aliens. And when Nikki Haley is quoted on illegal aliens, she says, oh, they're just looking for a better life. They're just trying to improve things for their family, and you shouldn't call them criminals. Even though they're illegally entering our country, illegally working in our country, and soaking up resources, I mean, billions of dollars of resources, and you say, that's the person we want? On that, especially on that existential threat to our country, we want to have Nikki Haley? Well, I think she's following the Bill Clinton. Um, I think she's following the money that she's getting from the big money donors who are establishment Republicans who also like illegal aliens for for a different reason than Democrats. Democrats want them for votes. Big business wants them uh, to run their businesses and supply the labor and drive down the cost of, of everybody else's paycheck. But, John, you're a great naysayer. Uh, appreciate naysayers every day. You got the Lars Larson Show. At 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Well, it turns out that Yemen's Houthi terrorists have promised not to attack Chinese ships in the Red Sea. And could this be a tactic to try to divert the U.S. attention away and pave the way for a Taiwan invasion? Trita Parsi joins me now, who's with the Quincy Institute. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So is there is that what the tactic is that uh, Yemen's uh, that Yemen's Houthi terrorists are are making promises and that we're working with China to try? I mean, what what's going on here? I really don't understand where this is going. The the Houthis are terrorists. No, at least uh, I can agree on that. And the Chicoms do not have America's best interests at heart. Yeah, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that uh, Houthis are trying to make sure that their efforts to blockade ships going to Israel does not affect countries like China and others that are not supporting Israel, because if it were to affect them, they would also start putting pressure on the Houthis uh, to stop these attacks. But as long as the attacks are more or less targeted, they target Israeli ships or ships going to Israeli ports, uh, then they can escape that type of a pressure from uh, countries that are not aligned with Israel. And so I think they're making a carve out, not just for the Chinese, but for many other ships, as long as they're not uh, uh, involved in uh, trade with Israel. And and this is a way of splitting the Chinese from the U.S. We're just at at least making sure that the Chinese and others don't come to side with the U.S. in the efforts the Biden administration is trying to put on the Houthis. So what should the United States do if the Houthi terrorists decide to go after shipping in, in the Red Sea and say, we're, we're going to attack these ships, but we're going to do it in a way not to anger uh, China? I mean, we do side with Israel. We are on Israel's side, and I'm glad we are. Um, should we just let this happen, this cooperation? Well, I mean, what you described is exactly what's already happening. So it's, it's already taking place. Uh, in my view, look, the most important priority for the United States here has to be that we do not get dragged into another war in the Middle East. I agree. Every time that has happened, that has been an absolute disaster. 
Uh, and even if, you know, the, and the tactical level striking back, et cetera, can make sense, we have to keep an eye on what the aggregate will lead to. So, for instance, right now, uh, the Biden administration has bombed the Houthis nine times so far. Yep. Yep. The president is on record saying that it doesn't work, but that he's going to continue it. And that's going to lead to what we already have seen, more attacks by the Houthis. Incidentally, the Houthis were not attacking American ships until after Biden struck the Houthis. So now they're starting to attack American ships as well. They weren't doing that before. So at some point, uh, we're going to ramp it up even further. And at that moment, it's probably going to look as if it's justified because the Houthis probably did something really bad prior to that. And before we know it, we're at war in the Middle East again. So we have to keep our eye on the strategic goal. And the goal is not to get dragged into these different things. And here's where there is another option that the Biden administration is not even willing to consider. What is it? The Houthi demand is that the Israelis stop bombing Gaza and that there's a ceasefire there. It's the same demand that the Iraqi militias and others are having. Uh, The Israelis, of course, uh, are not particularly inclined to go along with the ceasefire, although pressure inside of Israel is starting to grow in favor of that because the war has not been a success, and the war has not won the release of the hostages. A ceasefire in November did win the release of some of the hostages. So why, isn't, why aren't we even trying for seeing the ceasefire option and see if that helps not only end the attacks uh, in the Red Sea, but also win the release of the hostages? And also, incidentally, during the six days that there was a ceasefire in November of last year, the attacks by Iraqi militias against U.S. troops went down to zero. As soon as the ceasefire broke, then the attacks uh, started to ramp up again. So again, our interest is to not get dragged into any of these wars. And the ceasefire appears to be a pathway of pacifying all of the different fronts in which we might get dragged into a war. Okay, but but let me ask you, Trita, isn't it inevitable then if you say, We're not going to let Israel is not going to go in and completely rout Hamas. So which which is their stated intention. And you say, okay, we we have a ceasefire. And then Hamas gets to reconstitute itself, rearm itself. And in a year or two, we'll have more sneak attacks on Israel. But we'll have been warned ahead of time. If anybody strikes back, if Israel strikes back, we're, we're going to start terrorism throughout the region again a- against both the U.S. and Israel. So caving into that kind of extortion, does it make sense short term but not long term, or does it make sense at all? Well, it, it makes sense in both short term and long term because bottom line is Israel is not capable of completely taking out Hamas and certainly not doing so at a cost that is not completely um, uh, uh, you know, unacceptable. I mean, we're talking about more than 25,000 civilian deaths at this point. And, and don't take it from me. Take it from former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who wrote an op-ed about a month ago in Israeli newspaper Haaretz. And the first sentence was, the chances of taking out Hamas militarily entirely is nil. That's what he said. He's the former Prime Minister of Israel. So look, we had a situation in which Hamas conducted a horrible terrorist attack against Israel. Israel is understandably enraged, just as we were after 9-11. But it doesn't mean that anything that it seeks to do is necessarily in its own long-term interest. Uh, Because look what's going to happen on Friday. There's a high likelihood that the International Court of Justice is going to judge that what Israel is doing is plausibly genocide. 
and call and, and, and order an injunction for Israel to stop. That is going to be so devastating in terms of Israel's standing and, and international uh, uh, avoiding international isolation. So, and the Israelis have worked so hard for the last 15 years to push back against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, the BDS movement. And that's not because those kind of divestments or boycotts would have a significant impact on Israel's economy, but it's because of the way that the Israelis believe that it would delegitimize and isolate Israel. But nothing will delegitimize and isolate it more so than a ruling in the International Court of Justice saying that it is plausibly engaged in genocide. In genocide against a population that elected Hamas as its government, that supports Hamas, at least according to the polls, says supports Hamas by about a 75 percent margin. And so Hamas can carry out terrorist attacks in the future as they did in the no, past. No. And, and then on, say, but you can't hurt us because we've surrounded ourselves no, with a compliant population. No, I, I think you're mixing up a couple of things. First of all, we should be very careful with that reasoning because that's the same reasoning Osama bin Laden used to justify the attacks on the United States on 9-11, saying, well, the U.S. government is elected by the American people. The American people stand by the U.S. government. As a result, the, the American people are legitimate targets. That's an interesting argument. Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute. It's the Lars Larson Show. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls on a Wednesday night. Let me get to some calls in just a moment, but I want to share a couple of things with you. I've been watching what's happened since Tuesday in New Hampshire. Now, Nikki Haley finished second in a two-candidate race. I mean, there were other candidates, but and, and there were some crazy candidates on the list as well. But Nikki Haley lost by 11 percentage points. And uh, my read on that is that she does not have what it takes to get to the next contest. There's going to be a caucus in Nevada. There will be another primary in South Carolina. But take a look at this assessment by Politico. This just literally crossed a couple of minutes ago. On the heels of a weak Iowa performance, the architecture of Nikki Haley's 11-point defeat last night all but confirms there's no real path forward to the GOP nomination. Now, Politico tilts a little to the left, so they say she remains a formidable candidate and can continue on through the mar- through March, amassing delegates. But it's a zombie campaign so long as she is losing three out of every four Republican votes to Donald Trump, as she did in New Hampshire. And that seems to be the read that I told you about a bit earlier, that some of her big money donors, at least one major donor, has already said, uh, I'm, I'm out. Uh, I'm not going to keep going this direction. So I don't think it makes any sense. But Politico also concludes Joe Biden is in better shape, at least within his own party, than many had assumed. 
with close to 12,000 write-in votes because he literally wasn't on the ballot. A sitting American president running for re-election who was not on the New Hampshire ballot because of his own party's decisions in trying to tell New Hampshire to move its primary to another date so that South Carolina could go first. He has won an impressive 56 percent against challenger Representative Dean Phillips, who could only muster 20 percent. He got 56 percent, and that's the good news for a sitting American president I don't think his own party wants him. Now, when presented with a ballot that offers you Joe Biden or some other guy, uh, I think they're probably going to go for Joe Biden. But when I've seen polls that indicate that a majority of Democrats would rather have somebody other than Joe Biden, the only problem is until they actually get that other somebody, they don't have anybody to vote for except Joe. So he may be the inevitable nominee. Let me go to Dennis first. And if you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our poll on X. Uh, The poll on X, we always put up a brand new question made up from the news of the day. Does letting Joe Biden's illegal alien invaders fly on commercial airlines without picture ID put American lives at risk? I would answer yes. You can answer any way you like. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on X. You'll also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And brought to you always by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. Believe me, folks, AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Dennis, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? You want to talk about Nikki Haley? Hey, I love your show. Good show. Thank you, hey, sir. Uh, this is the whole thing Trump. I love Trump. I love I voted for him last time. I thought he was great. And he went great. However, Trump is really good about talking about the past. He's really good about that. Yeah, he'll put it right through it. He'll tell exactly what Biden did wrong. He'll lay the whole administration out. The problem is Americans are freaking stupid. And that's the problem. Haley's going to say, I'm going to do this for you. And they're going to say, well, I like that. Because this guy's talking about the past. And well, just, who, uh, can, I, can, I, can I stop you on that for a moment, Dennis? Because when you say he's talking about the past, Donald Trump's most well, consistent the promise. No, I get all that. But, but Dennis, there are two things about that. Let me finish. Number one, he will talk about all the other things that are going on. But his two most consistent promises on day one, we close the border. We drill, drill, drill for the fuel that America owns and possesses and can use. And we begin the biggest deportation effort in American history. That ain't the past. But it does address the you're president. Right. No, I agree. I agree with that. I agree. No, I agree with that. I agree with your statement there. However, the last the, the last time he took Biden on, he was hitting Biden on some good points, and all Biden was saying was, "I'm going to do this for you." And people went, "Oh my gosh!" And the guy runs a the Biden ran a and I, it was Rick. I, but, but, I don't think I, Joe I Biden hasn't even that. fulfilled That's his own promises, has he? You're right. You're right. And but you see that I have a I had relatives who were in, in in politics. That's the whole thing. Say what you say what you say. Don't fulfill it. Come back. Well, do it this time. You don't fulfill it, and they keep voting for you. Yep. Why do you think the Democrats stay in office all the time? 
Except, except Dennis, 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 hold on. What has Nikki Haley said about anything she'd do as president that makes you want to vote for? Nikki Haley, this is all day. Nikki Haley is going to still vote from Trump. One or the other. No, hold on, Dennis. Dennis, if you're not hard of hearing, I asked you, what has Nikki Haley said she will do for America that makes you want to vote for her? You know what? Actually, she hasn't said nothing. Really, to be honest with you, I just think I just think. Well, then why do you want to vote for her? I I don't. I really don't. Uh, Well, but stop then. Stop then. Because because Trump has talked about what he would do with education. He's talked about what he'd do with illegal aliens, about the border, about energy, about prices. All and he will dismantle the deep state, which he took a shot at in the first term. I agree with all. I agree with all of that. How is that? With, how is that anything that. about the past? Because I think it, you want to run a bumper sticker where you say, "You're right." Okay. When it's it passed, it's over. When it's passed, overrate, and it will. They will overrate his his. How his, how will the past? Tank. And by the way, his current fights in court against I think completely wrong-headed prosecutions are part of the equation right now. That ain't the past. Oh, That's what's happening right now. You're right. right? You're exactly. But which one are you going to bring up? That's what it is. When it, when it comes down to it, and people start hearing about the courts and what's going on and all that, they don't want to hear about that. I mean, well, really hold don't. on a second. i, I got to differ with you, Dennis. Every time Trump okay. holds a rally, he draws crowds in the tens of thousands. If you're And I've, I've listened to Hold on. Will you hold on a second? I've listened to most of the speeches he's given in the last, uh, well, since he left office. And the last one I listened to the entire speech, an hour and 45 minutes, was about all of his plans for America and the things he's accomplished and the things he plans to do. If you're telling me people don't want to hear that, hold on, Dennis. I've gone to presidential events before. And they take hours. You you spend hours getting there. You spend hours in security. You wait for hours. There are tens of thousands of people who go through all of that to hear what he has to say. And you say nobody wants to hear about that? No, I didn't say that. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, just put this way here. Biden gets 48.9% of the vote. This is the players out with Okay, I'm sorry, Dennis. You ran us up against the block, but... There we go. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And usually this time of year, we're at SHOT Show, the shooting, hunting, outdoor trade show in Las Vegas. Didn't make it this year, probably will in future years. But I still get a chance to talk to some of the great people who come there. And on the hookup with me right now, Anthony Pace, CEO and founder of Freedom Hunters, and uh, retired Army Command Sergeant Major Major Dave List. Uh, uh, Mr. Pace, welcome to the program. Major uh, Command uh, S- Command Sergeant Major uh, Dave List, thank you very much for coming on. Hoo-ah. Great to be here, Lars. 
Yeah, would you mind telling my audience what Freedom Hunters is all about? And, of course, we want to let them know how they can take part in this effort to uh, not just protect our freedoms, but also to honor the work of those who served in the military, like uh, Command Sergeant Major Liz. Very good. Well, Freedom Hunters is a 501c3. We're a military outreach program. Uh, we take servicemen and their families out on outdoor adventures, uh, mainly hunting, shooting, and fishing trips. Uh, kind of all around the country and internationally as well. And uh, Sar- uh, Command Sergeant Major List, so tell me, tell me, have you been directly involved in Freedom Hunters for some time? I have, sir. I was actually a customer of theirs uh, back in 2008. Anthony got a hold of me, and uh, they uh, took me on a coyote hunt out to uh, Kit Carson, Colorado, Uh it, it was a, a great adventure, something I've always wanted to do. And uh, since then, I've got uh, veterans that I know, because I still work for the 4th Infantry Division at Fort Carson, Colorado, to go into the Freedom Hunters program and go on hunts. And then finally, after like 11 years, Anthony says, boy, you sure would be a great asset if you became one of our board of directors. And I said, let's do it. After a grueling interview... <laughs> with uh, him and and another board member, they finally selected me. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're out hunting coyotes, although I always used to think of that as the cleanup you did after you got your buck deer or maybe an elk. And then, the, you know, for the rancher whose land you were hunting on, yeah. you shot a few coyotes just, for, uh, <laughs> yeah, just to try to clean up the landscape a little bit because they multiply like rats. Exactly. But it is kind of fun. So, uh, listen, tell me how my audience can help you out, and, and what do you need most? I mean, do you do you need uh, hunt opportunities? Do you need firearms? Uh, do you need some veterans that people would like to see honored by this kind of opportunity? And, and are we focusing on their kids as well? You know, Lars, all the above is, is perfectly what we need. So opportunities uh, to get the guys out, uh, obviously, we, we like to have great applicants. We've got an online uh, application system on our website at freedomhunters.org. So uh, veterans, active duty, uh, families of the military, Gold Star families uh, can apply. Uh, same, same website, you can go there to donate directly uh, or contact us uh, you know, via email. And we'll be happy to talk about any opportunity that, that you've got that you'd like to share with, with our military community. Well, because every once in a while we hear from people in the audience who email me and they say, well, I'm, you know, I've got a piece of property and we let people come out and hunt it uh, from time to time. And, and, and when they do that, they say, how do I get in touch? There, there are Americans out there who understand how important it is to honor uh, the work and the service of people like Command Sergeant Major List. And, and they have those resources available to them, not just a gun, but maybe a chunk of property somewhere that has, uh, has game on it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's amazing. We've had some great opportunities come our direction. And it's, you know, it's the patriotic people out there in the world that, that want to give back. They, they want to show those that served that we do care about them and that we want to help, help them in the healing process in whatever way we can. So any opportunity, you know, pass it our way. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to, you know, pair that up with a veteran or a service member that really needs to get out there and get some healing taking place. Hey, by the way, Anthony, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative because I want to ask uh, Command Sergeant Major List about something. You were involved in finding Saddam down in that spider hole? Uh, yes, sir, I was. I was the Command Sergeant Major in, 
in charge of uh, First Squadron, 10th United States Cavalry. And uh, my Alpha Troop are the guys that found him uh, in the hole after a whole bunch of information from all over the country uh, came up. And uh, we finally figured out exactly where he was. The 4th Infantry Division was the key to that whole operation. I mean, that's kind of a pathetic, it had to be a pathetic sight to go from being a guy who's the head of a country, who, as I understand it, had a couple of dozen palaces where dinner was made every night, whether he showed up or not, just in case he showed up, and where he'd put his 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 worst friends in a helicopter, and the helicopter would suffer a malfunction. He went from that kind of thing to hiding in a spidey hole. That, that That's correct. Uh, when we captured him, uh, of course, he looked pretty bad. He had a long beard. He had long, straggly hair. Uh, at the beginning of the invasion, he was a clean-cut, general-looking guy. He had a painting of himself uh, when he was a general uh, down inside the hole with him. And, what? Uh, w- yes, sir. <laughs> J- just so he could look at himself. Hold on. Uh, I mean, and, look, uh, I don't have a painting of myself in my house. Can you can you imagine the <laughs> ego of this guy? Yeah, it, it was it was crazy. Of course, it became part of our regimental room when we got it back to the United <laughs> States because we didn't give it up no matter what. Oh my goodness! That is. And how long were you in the service, sir? Uh, I started in 1975. Wow. I retired in 2008. It was 32 years straight, sir. Holy cow! I mean, you stayed in a but but isn't isn't that it? Command sergeant majors and 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 the middle ranks. Because uh, you're considered an NCO, correct? That, that's correct. Uh, okay. And there, you guys are the backbone of the whole. F- I mean, you got a bunch of uh, you know butter bars that are that are telling you what to do, except you know what to do. Yeah. And then you've that, got a, you got all the people below you who are saying you better listen to Command Sergeant Major because he's the yeah. guy who actually knows what's going on. Th- that's correct. We love our officers, but sometimes we have to make <laughs> the right choice. Are, are they educatable? Th- they are. <laughs> Got to hit them in the head a couple times, but they actually come on board. <laughs> if, if you just you just got to get to them the right way. Well, you know, I, 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 my my stepson was in the U.S. Marines, and and he got all yep. the way up to uh, corporal, but uh, but then he did his four years, and 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 he didn't say any. He dropped his pack, but but yep. he decided yep. to go back to civilian life. But thank you for that that kind of service. That's that's the uh, human intelligence of the military that exists within those middle ranks, isn't it? That, that's correct. Yeah, we call it good order and discipline. <laughs> yeah, good order and discipline. Absolutely right. And do you still like hunting? And is it only coyotes that you're going after? Anything bigger? Maybe something with horn? Uh, no, sir. I, I, I've killed a very nice mule deer this year out in Colorado. Nice. Uh, I'm a big muzzleloader hunter. I like to use, you know, old nostalgic weapons. Uh, not too many inlines, but, uh, you know, flintlocks, percussion, that kind of hunting, is that's my forte. I really love that. Well, i got to tell you, I tend to go more with either shells or arrows, but, but I, I haven't done the black powder stuff. But it, 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 sounds, it sounds more challenging, frankly. Uh, and, 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 and so when I want to get up close, I'll do bow. And when I want to use uh, a distance, I, I tend to use something that's got a little reach to it. Yeah, that, that's... That's a good plan. I, I do shoot a few things with rifles, uh, long range, but uh, mostly those muzzle loaders. What I what are, I really are you a long range shooter? Are you a you know? Uh, are not you... a long range shooter, sir. I, I I'm one of those guys who likes to get as close to the animal as possible. <laughs> uh, so if I can get within a hundred yards, I, I I'm a happy camper. Oh, listen! If I get within a hundred yards, I'd I'd rather. I... 
I, I'm not going to do a bow at 100 yards, but 100 <laughs> yards where where I've hunted, you know, the, I got in trouble the first time I went out hunting on a friend's property. It was a lot of property. Uh, you know, it was like 13,000 acres. And they oh. said, what are you sighted in? And I said, 200 yards. And they said, when you come back next year, make it 300, because we didn't shoot much of anything short of 300 yards. And uh, and it was kind of dumb to come out there with a with a gun that was only shoot uh, sighted in at 200. So I corrected that before the next year. Good job. Good job. Well, listen, it is a pleasure to have you both on. Retired Army Command Sergeant Major Dave List, 32 years of service. Anthony Pace, who's CEO and founder of Freedom Hunters. If you've got some friends who are veterans, if you've got some friends who have children of those deployed in service to America, if you've got some combat veteran friends and you want to give them a great opportunity, Freedom Hunters is out there. If you've got some opportunities, maybe a few acres or a couple of thousand somewhere, you can give them a great opportunity. Please offer them up. Gentlemen, thank you very much. And Command Sergeant Major Dave List, thank you so much for your service to America. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I'm Shanola Hampton. The 40th President of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you blame the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. I know we talk to a lot of guests. I like to bring you the best guests I can possibly find for you. Our uh, ex-poll today used to be called Twitter. Does letting Joe Biden's illegal alien invaders fly on commercial airliners without picture ID put American lives at risk. And in fact, I think the argument can be made that it does because TSA has now posted signs at airports. We talked about uh, when we first found out about these signs last week, a sign posted at the Miami International Airport tells these so-called migrants, what the mainstream media insists on calling migrants, I call them illegal aliens. Number one, notify the TSA officer that you are a migrant. The TSA officer will take a photo. That's optional. And it's it's not the option of TSA. It's the option of the illegal alien. If requested, provide your alien identification number or biographic information. Taking the photo would allow TSA to confirm the person boarding actually matches the person pictured in the CBP app. But the airport sign says photo capture is voluntary. The illegal alien trying to board could be anybody. Americans without photo ID would likely be grilled for more than an hour, patted down. TSA would go over their luggage before the plane takes off without them. But in this case, illegal aliens are superior to American citizens in America. And on that note, let's go to Mark in Nevada. Hey, Mark, thanks for listening on KKFT. Glad to have you with me. Uh, What's on your mind today? Hey, Mark. Hello. Hey, yes, how are you doing? I'm doing yeah, quite well. What's on your mind, sir? So much. Yeah, I just wanted to give some comments about the um, about New Hampshire, and honestly, I think it's too bad that DeSantis didn't catch fire. I mean, to me, he's kind of like Trump without the kryptonite. Um, but you think he's like said, Trump without the crypt? Okay. 
Well, I mean, I was at the Trump rally in Reno a few weeks ago, which was awesome. And like you said, people are waiting there um, forever. And I literally wasn't going to get in because the line was so long. So I bought some Trump merch and bribed a couple of ladies up ahead and they let me in the line. Um, I gave them some hats and I got in the line. But, you know, we don't have to, you know, this isn't going to be won or lost. The general is not going to be won or lost by the diehards, right? We're not, we're never going to get a Biden person to vote for Trump or, or vice versa. But, oh, you know, know I am that. concerned. Right. Okay, well, hopefully. Okay. hopefully let let me ask you also, something, Mark. Mark, I've always said that, and the guy I refer to as Frank Rizzo, who used to be the mayor of Philadelphia, is long gone now. But he used to say that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. So in line with what's going on right now, Let's say you are that Biden person, you know, who voted for Joe Biden three years ago. And then you watched as your country was invaded by 10 million illegal aliens. Uh, the economy went to heck. The cost of everything went up massively, gigantically. And uh, mortgage rates more than doubled. They're still more than doubled today. Um, jobs are beginning to go away. The federal government has gone from a $1 trillion annual deficit so they're short $1 trillion to now $2 trillion. The uh, federal debt has grown massively. Is that enough of a mugging, you think, to take some people who voted for Joe Biden three years ago and say, I ain't voting oh, for that uh, guy again? A hundred percent. And I mean, what I meant about DeSantis, the thing I liked about DeSantis was yeah. he was disciplined. And he would get into the room with a rabid press who would say stupid stuff to him, and he wouldn't take the bait. And to your point, Lars, if Trump would show up at every press conference, you know, with like those boards they have in the Senate, like you said, mortgage rate 2020, you know, 3.5%, today 7.2%. No, 2.7. 2.7 was the rate the day okay. Joe took office. 2.7, it is now north yeah. of 6 yeah, it's tripled almost. I mean, it's 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 been over seven for some mortgages. It but has. the bottom line is, if Trump had the discipline and could just talk about this is what a gallon of milk cost you when I left office. This is what it costs today. If Ross Perot did that great, that, but it didn't win him the race, did it? So, so I guess what I'm wondering is, if if tens of thousands of people show up for Trump's rallies, and will like like we talked about, it takes forever to get into an event. You have to sit there for usually hours before the candidate shows up. He speaks for, in, in the case of Trump, hour and a half, hour 45. And then it's usually a process to get away from the event. You're talking about somebody committing eight, ten hours of their day to be able to sit in person and watch Donald Trump when they could watch him on their smartphone. And yet they do it. Doesn't that suggest that no matter what his personal style is, this resonates with average Americans? Hundred percent. The other now, thing hold I'm on, hold on. One, one more question for you. Do you remember when Joe Biden sort of ran from his basement? hundred percent. Okay. Do you remember that he did have a few rallies? Yeah, when people drove into parking lots and flat. Yeah. And how many? How, how big were the crowds for Joe Biden typically? Two hundred people. Yeah, two hundred at most, and I don't know how many of those were paid, but. So you have a guy who draws tens of thousands. You have a guy who draws a couple of hundred. It seems to me that Trump has his finger on what it is that Americans want to talk about and what they care about. Is that wrong? I agree, but there are two risks. No, 100%. But I think there are two risk factors. Number one, and 
I don't know how the Republicans deal with this, but the whole abortion issue and the Republicans have gotten clobbered in the states when this has been an issue. And, you know, I'm sure you saw that CNN interview with Kamala a couple of days ago. And that's the drum they're going to bang. And then I heard some other pundits. Well, but it's now a state issue. It's not a federal issue anymore, is it? No, but the but the sheeple have been brainwashed to believe that, you know, like, like they were asking Nikki Haley, oh, are you going to outlaw abortion? She was and she was getting angry at, at the interviewer saying, look, that, that's not the job. That's the president doesn't do that. It's it's a state thing. But most people are just low information people. They 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 take the hook, line and sinker soundbite that, oh, the Republicans are out to, you know, do this and do that and take away your rights. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but I think people are stupid. And then we have to we have to wake up the lions out there, Mark. You yes, can't be just 100%. preaching to sheep. You got to wake up the lions. And frankly, I'd suggest that people begin to say to their friends who say, "Oh no, I'm going to vote for Biden." And you say, "What's Biden done for you?" You know, let's say you're a tried and true liberal. You vote Democrat your whole life, blah blah. And then you say, "Okay, what has he done for you? What has he done for the country?" And you know, I can't wait as we get closer to the election. I'm going to get calls from people who are Biden. You know, they want people to vote for Biden. And I'll do the same thing I did when Hillary Clinton ran unsuccessfully and lost to Donald Trump. I'm going to say, what did she get done? And you know what I got with Hillary was, well, she was, and I said she was the president's wife. She was in the Senate for a few years. She cheated her way into the Senate. Um, then she gets in the Senate. She runs for president. She she immediately abandons her Senate spot, you know, to, says to the people of New York, hey, thanks for the boost. That's all I wanted it for was to put my and then and then she she runs for president, loses, becomes secretary of state. And even there, I said, what'd she get done? And they said, well, she flew two million miles. OK, what else? What'd she get done? And and could you think the the most tried and true Democrat, you know, could name one damn thing? that Joe Biden has actually done well? Yeah, I think the only thing I could name is that insulin is less expensive. I mean, that's yeah, hold all on. I know Do you about. know, and you need to tell your friends this. When Joe Biden came in, everything Donald Trump did, even the things that, you know, that Joe Biden would end, eventually end up agreeing with, Trump had already put in place restrictions to hold those prices of insulin down. Biden erased them. It was like he dug a hole so he could fill it in and say, look at the hole I filled in. You mean the hole you made, President Biden? Back in a moment. You got the Lars Larson Show. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers, of course, go right to the head of the list. Uh, Joe Biden gave a speech yesterday, not on the economy, because that's not looking so good, not on securing America's borders, because that's also not looking so good, but actually promoting harm to women and babies 
Is Joe aligning with Americans or just his political party? Sean Carney joins me now, president and CEO of 40 Days for Life. How are you, Sean? Good. Good to be back. I just had a call from a gentleman in Nevada who was saying, Lars, we uh, we got to watch out this abortion topic. They're going to shove it down our throats. And I said, well, number one, the Supreme Court said it's a state decision. I know there's still people playing around with, you know, ideas for a federal ban of some kind. Um, but I actually think it belongs in the states. And that's my point of view. But but tell me where you think this is going to intersect with the presidential election and the candidacies of, I would argue, the most pro-life president since Reagan. Um, and maybe even in some ways better than Reagan and uh, and Joe Biden, who's for killing babies all uh, all the way up to the moment of birth. Yeah, there's two things going on, and, and they're both good. Number one, the caller's right, but it's not a bad thing. Um, they're going to shove abortion in our face. They're going to make the whole thing about abortion, because what else can they make it about? <laughs> As you mentioned, yeah. immigration, national security, <laughs> uh, the economy. So this is what they're left with. They also have just made abortion their sacrament. I mean, everything was going down the tubes, and then the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and they thought, okay, we'll just try to use this to, to, to run on. One of the problems with his speech is, so that's one thing that, that if they focus on abortion, not everyone will follow because of those other issues. If everything was going well, I'd be more concerned, but it's not, so I'm not. Uh, abortion has a, has a limited political – most people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Uh, there's not a big pro-choice single-issue constituency. Like there's a big pro-life single constituency, uh, you know, voting uh, – uh, constituency. And so it's not going to last in, in that sense. The other thing is that what he kept saying in his speech yesterday is Donald Trump is responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that's really good because I've been concerned about pro-life voter turnout this go around since Roe was overturned and people being weary. Because and, you people know, lose the fire in their belly about the issue because it's it's a fire in my belly. I, I want to protect unborn Americans. And if they say Donald Trump is evil and he overturned Roe v. Wade, that's a huge positive for Trump's base, particularly the, the pro-life base, the evangelicals, the Catholics. So um, I, I think that's good. I hope he keeps saying it. Well, maybe, Sean, you can get some of the clever people at 40 Days for Life to put together some viral videos. You know, that, that showed Joe Biden over and over again saying Donald Trump's the reason that we have tens of thousands of more living babies today than we would have had had Dobbs not uh, not overturned Roe. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've done one of those because he tweeted it a couple of weeks ago. He's like, Donald Trump is responsible for the overturning of Roe. And <laughs> and he you know, he, he tweeted that out. So I guess these justices are just stupid. They're just robots. They don't think. I mean, did Biden read the the opinion? Why did they overturn Roe? Does anybody know? I mean, well, number one, it wasn't there was no right to abortion in the Constitution. And I'm not a lawyer either, but there was no right to abortion found in the Constitution. I don't know how they invented it in 73. I was in middle school or junior high. But number two, it properly is the decision of the states. And and that's where it sits. And nobody knows that. And they're just saying, this is awful. But why is it awful? If Ginsburg said it was bad law, if Alito starts his opening sentence by saying Roe was egregiously decided, yep. I mean, have we just lost any kind of intellectual you know, uh, capacity to say, you know, there's got to be a reason that all these people overturned Roe, a more diverse Supreme Court, by the way, that gave us Roe, all-male Supreme Court gave us Roe. We didn't vote on it. And so... 
I, I'm I'm very encouraged. I wasn't six months ago, but I am. It's not abortion. It's not a political loser. We know that from Governor Kemp and DeSantis and Abbott, who won handedly in 2022. And so I don't think it's something to fear. And, and frankly, with all these other issues going on in our country, I, I'm surprised. I live in Texas, so the border is always a big deal, and we're sort of yep. hoping the rest of the country cares. But I have been pleasantly surprised at the Democrats across the country who are like, we got to do something about the border. It's out of control. Because you would have never heard that a decade ago. No, you wouldn't have. And and I'll, I'll tell you, Sean, one of the things that troubles me is there have been some attacks on Trump trying to say he's softening up on life. You're in, a, in the catbird seat to decide that. Do you see Donald Trump softening up on the right to life? I did. I did. He took a lot of flack. I criticized him. Uh, a lot of people criticized him, and he's gone back on that. And so I, I think he, he did the right thing. He's kind of corrected his tone. Um, and and it will come up. It's going to come up a lot. you think that was just an inadvertent error? I mean, because, look, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. I talk for six hours right. every day. I guarantee you somebody's going to say, well, you got this wrong or that wrong. And I go, yep, I'm imperfect like, like every other one of God's creatures. Yeah, he's just done so well. You're exactly right. I say dumb stuff all the time because we do we do a lot of talking in our in our jobs. But the um, I actually it was a technical thing. What I heard was that there was a lady who gave him specific advice on pro life and on marriage and and on uh, a lot of these talking points. And she left for for reasons we don't know why. But she was with him from the beginning, and and uh, I think he just was listening to somebody who gave him bad advice to criticize the heartbeat bill which a lot of Democrats went for, actually, in Florida and Texas. So, um, so yeah, I, I think he's sort of corrected that. Um, he needs to brag. That's just all he needs to do. He needs to brag. He needs to own the Supreme Court. He's proud of the Supreme Court, dragging us out of 1973 science. Roe v. Wade was bad law. It does go back to the states. Uh, we, need to, we need to, you know, look at the actual biological reality of unborn children and not just see them as something that can be discarded at 40 weeks like the Democrats. There's so many great little talking points that he can use and then get into these other issues. And, and that's that's what I think people are actually going to be more interested in come November. I think so, too. And, and Sean, uh, one of the things that drives me, the, the Democrats and the left seems to be has have turned into the party of perversion. I mean, they want to put drag queen story hours in libraries and elementary schools. Uh, they want to tell you that a, a man isn't really a man, a woman isn't a woman, and even Katenji Brown-Jackson, a Supreme Court justice, can't tell the difference. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of freakishness on that side, whereas we're just good old boring, yeah, we think babies should be alive, uh, we think men should be men, we think women should be women, and if you want to side with the party of freakish, perverse behavior, well, that would be the Democrat Party, and they seem to love that thing. Sean Carney is the president and CEO of 40 Days for Life. Sean, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so very much. If you want to send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. That's easy. You can check out my Instagram feed. You'll find I do have a face for radio, but that's okay. I've lived with it my entire life. God gave it to me, and I'm happy about that. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. We t- okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I'm-
may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. I am not going to let these people who hate our country tell me not to run. You should call them and tell them to get behind me. That is the voice of Carrie Lake, and Carrie Lake is running for the United States Senate. And that audio recording was made just less than a year ago, March of last year. And I want to tell you what it's all about, because it's one of the most extraordinary stories in this year's campaign season. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, I'd be glad to put you right to the head of the list, as long as you're willing to answer some phone or some questions from me as well. But this story about Carrie Lake is kind of extraordinary. Here's the gist of it. It broke yesterday. And what we found out is that Carrie Lake, who ran for governor of Arizona, and she lost. Although I have to tell you parenthetically, she was running in a race for governor against a young lady by the name of Katie Hobbs. And Katie Hobbs was at that time the secretary of state. So she was in charge of elections in Arizona. Carrie Lake loses officially, although I think she was, honestly, she was cheated out of the win. And she decides instead to run for the United States Senate. Now, guess what happens next? She's very popular. She is endorsed by Donald Trump. She endorses Donald Trump. She is a conservative, by all accounts. And, uh, you know, has, has she, like mo- many people in politics, been involved in on the other side of the aisle? Well, Ronald Reagan was a Democrat for a long time. Ronald Reagan was a union official for a long time. Carrie Lake, uh, at least if you believe what she says, and I think I do, is a conservative. So what happens? Well, there are people in politics in America who are trying to take Donald Trump out of the race. Good example of that or good evidence of that is the candidacy of Nikki Haley which wasn't going along very well at all. She appeared to be coming in third to Ron DeSantis until last December, when a bunch of people with big checkbooks said, we're going to get behind, uh, we're going to get behind Nikki Haley and we're going to see if we can give her a push so that she can knock Donald Trump out of the race. Well, you can see how well that has worked out so far. Donald Trump won big in Iowa. In fact, it was an historic win in Iowa. And then uh, Nikki Haley went on to New Hampshire, and she came in second. She came in about 12 points behind Donald Trump. But I guess for the backers of Nikki Haley, they view that as a victory. She, She says she's going on to the South Carolina primary next. So apparently they're still backing her at that point. Why were the big money types behind knocking Donald Trump out to put in somebody like Nikki Haley, who's a rhino Republican, a more establishment, moderate Republican instead of Donald Trump, because the folks who make all the money uh, out of politics and out of government want to have one of those go along, get along Republicans as president. They'd rather have that. In fact, they'd rather have a Democrat like Joe Biden than to have somebody who's a very conservative like Donald Trump. So this takes us right back to Kerry Lake. So while Nikki Haley is getting big money from the establishment to push her along and maybe push Trump out. What's happening to Carrie Lake? Well, 
the recording was made in March of last year. And it stayed secret until the Daily Mail got a copy of it. And by last night, everybody in the world on social media had a copy of a rather extensive recording of a conversation between Kerry Lake and the guy who was, until he announced his resignation today, the chairman of the Republican Party of Arizona. His name is Jeff DeWitt. And the conversation recorded is one of the most extraordinary things I've heard in American politics in my entire career. So let's start off with Jeff DeWitt, then still yesterday, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, trying to talk a very popular candidate for U.S. Senate out of running for the U.S. Senate with money. Take a listen. Is there a number at which I can be bought? (laughs) That's what it's about. You can take a pause for a couple of years. No. Let me go right back to what you're doing. Mm -mm. No. 10 million, 20 million, no, no. No. A billion? No. This is not about money. This is about our country. Yeah. So Kerry Lake says to Jeff DeWitt, no amount of money is going to knock me out of this race. Well, I think Kerry Lake realizes, like Donald Trump does, the time is right now. You've got to save the country right now. And Kerry Lake then calls out the corruption of Jeff DeWitt and the big money people that were trying to bribe her to get out. Take a listen to that. There are very powerful people who want to keep you out. I know they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. So, this conversation never happened. This is crazy, though. They should want me. I'm a great candidate. People love me. These people are corrupt. These people are corrupt. Maybe you're right. They are right. They are corrupt. Now, imagine this. This is Jeff DeWitt admitting... Maybe some of the people that I'm there to make the offer to Kerry Lake get out of the race. There will be a job, a good job with a big paycheck, and there will be money to back your political campaign in the future. And Kerry Lake says, hold on, these people are corrupt. And he admits it. He says, well, maybe they are, but that's what they're offering right now. And she correctly identifies them. This is part of that band of globalists. Listen to that. They're going to try to have me murdered. Saints world, man. If that stuff that came out last week is right about the cartel stuff, man. They say the cartel's operating in 50 states right now. Like all 50. Like all 50. So she says, well, they're going to try to have me murdered if I won't drop out of the race. And he says, well, yeah, the cartels, they're present in all 50 states. And then, and then Kerry Lake is actually offered a job. It's not on the tape, but I've listened to the tape. Uh, this is, this is Mr. DeWitt saying, well, you know, I've talked to these people and they're willing to arrange a nice position for you somewhere where you get a paycheck. In almost every state in America, if you offer somebody something of value, cash, diamonds, uh, you know, a job, any, a promotion, any of that stuff, you're breaking the law. So take a listen to what she says. So what, what, what's going on? Who is it? What? Forget the who. Let me just tell you the what. I just say there are people calling around saying, gosh, no, you can't repeat this. Never repeat this. If you say no, don't. Because I got offered to buy out. Yeah. Because then we lose our ability to get things done in the future. Yeah. We lose our ability to get things done in the future if we admit that, hey, you know, somebody was offering me a job. And he even says, forget this conversation ever happened. And he says, I'm not going to tell you who's doing it. And then Carrie Lake talks about this being a hill to die on. Because they don't own me. And it pisses me off. Yeah, I said it's about ownership. It's about control. 
I don't know if it's about control. It's about being on the team. I guess that. You know what I mean? They want to be on the team. They want you to be on their team. But Just team. You know? But if they're pushing a globalist agenda, I can't do that. So what do they want? What do they want me to do? You want you to stay out for two years. They want you to stay out for two years. So we're not trying to control you. We just want you to be on our team. And if you'll do that, heck, we got lots of money to back your political career. We got a job for you. But don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody this conversation happened. That's how sleazy it gets. Jeff DeWitt has now resigned his spot. Control explained. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and glad to get your phone calls in a moment. Usually every year we go to SHOT Show, the shooting, hunting, outdoor trade show in Las Vegas. This year was one of the few years that we missed, but I still wanted to talk to some of the significant people who are showing up at this major event down in Vegas. And one of them is Peter Forcelli, who joins me now. Ms. Forcelli, glad to have you on, and I'm going to want you to explain to my audience your background, because I so appreciate what you did, uh, what now is about 14 years ago, when you outed the federal government for the gun. I would call them the gun crimes of the federal government. So, Peter Forcelli, welcome to the program. It's an honor to be here. And this is my first SHOT Show. What a tremendous, uh, just unbelievable place. Great people here. Um, it's, it's been just absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And, and, I, and it's one of the reasons I miss going, because I like talking to the people like you who come, but I also like seeing all the things that are on display, because I'm a gun enthusiast, too. My audience knows that I'm completely in favor of the Second Amendment and private ownership of guns and reducing restrictions by the government. And you worked for the ATF. I did. I worked there for 20 years. Uh, well, I, I was a, a homicide detective in New York City uh, before that, and we were working on cases that involved people misusing firearms and crimes of violence. And I joined the ATF to go after those sorts of cases. And for my career, that's what we did. Um, you know, I, I do have some concerns about what's going on with the organization now under the new director. I, I've never seen the organization uh, in such a uh, just a, a stance of kind of being against the industry. Uh, in fact, I know during the 10 years of Tom Brandon, who was acting director for a while, and B. Todd Jones, who was uh, before him, um, they believed that the industry was a good partner uh, in preventing gun crimes from happening. So this turn of events is, is unfortunate. And, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily related to what I went through back in uh, when I blew the whistle on Fast and Furious. But, uh, you know, it's indicative of that sometimes organizations get it wrong and people within those organizations have a duty to step up and make things right. You know, I, I want people to know what, what went on because, Ms. Forcelli, um, let's see, most of, an awful lot of younger people listening to this will hear Fast and Furious and think we're talking about a series of movies. What we're talking about is a program run during the uh, Obama administration in which effectively, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the federal government said, let's surreptitiously allow the straw purchase of firearms in America 
knowing that those firearms are going to be put in the hands of people associated with Mexican drug cartels. Did I get any of that wrong? No. Um, in fact, what was going on is you had a group of agents in Phoenix that were doing exactly that. But in some ways, it's worse because what was happening is like my group was involved in interdicting firearms that were bound for Mexico for years. Um, we intercepted firearms after we got confessions from people. And look, the tips that we got came from members of the industry. Ninety percent of the cases that we generated came from legitimate gun dealers who, you know, someone would come into their store with a bag full of money saying, I want all the AK variant rifles you have on the shelves. And they would tip us off and we would interdict those firearms so that they would never wind up hurting anybody. So what happened was a new group was stood up during the Obama administration, and they took a different position, and they allowed those transfers to occur, and they watched those firearms ride off into the sunset. But what happened um, was those guns, because they were showing up at crime scenes, were being traced. So the dealers reached out to ATF and the prosecutors in Phoenix and said, hey, we don't feel comfortable selling these guns to these people because we know that they're turning up at crime scenes. And people in that Phoenix Group 7 and the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is important to point out, met with those dealers and encouraged them to continue to sell firearms to people that they knew were trafficking them to the cartels. And the sad part is now, as you're probably aware, the government of Mexico is suing many of these dealers and these folks were doing exactly what they were told to do by the United States government, which to me is a, just a deep betrayal. I'd agree with you. And Ms. Forcelli, correct me if I'm wrong, but the theory was we let these guns be sold illegally. Then we'll be able to trace where they go and we'll, we'll find the path, you know, to the bad guys. Except the ATF already knew pretty well from having run Operation Quarterback, a similar deal with the cooperation of the Mexican government under President Bush, that it wasn't going to work. So they already knew it wasn't going to work. So there was another agenda at work, wasn't there? There was. And, look, the, the whole concept that they were going to take down a cartel with – look, DEA had a very robust presence in Mexico. They had a network of informants. They had vetted units of Mexican soldiers who had background checks and whatnot. If they couldn't take down the cartels with the narcotics conspiracy laws, the idea that we were going to do it with straw purchasing cases was, I mean, delusional, really. There's no other way to put it. So, I mean, it, it's unfortunate. But, yeah, the, the, the Bush case has nothing to do with the case that happened during the Obama administration. The Obama case was far more nefarious and um the, the interesting well, it thing didn't is, involve the mexican government did it no it did not it did not so, uh, so bush look, had the cooperation of the mexicans uh obama did not and you thought it was going to work without the cooperation of mexican authorities in tracing all this that seems especially foolish it is and look the, the the reality is is the body count was growing in mexico long before border patrol agent brian terry who was a hero was murdered with a, a firearm that was part of that investigation yep. um and look there were people in atf myself included who were asking questions all along saying hey what are you doing this doesn't sound legitimate and we were told hey we're doing something different no one in a million years um who worked for atf that did things right would have thought that that different was walking guns um, into the hands of murderers. I mean, the cartels, I mean, we see what they're doing now. And look, they've grown in strength and they've grown in their ability to reach out and do things to people in different parts of Mexico. We see CJNJ, for example, drives around uh, large swaths of Mexico in armored vehicles with firearms in uniform. I mean, the stuff going on in Mexico really blows the mind. And it's difficult to, you know, to really think about it because it's true in some ways. The U.S. government helped arm them and get them to the position where, in many instances, they're beating Mexican law enforcement and Mexican military components in battles. 
I'm talking to Peter Forcelli, the ATF agent who blew the whistle. And when you did that, June of 2011, you show up in front of Congress and you say, look, I'm going to tell you about the bad things that are happening in this agency. What you got for it initially, I know you finally got to some kind of satisfaction, but what you got initially, correct me if I'm wrong, is you got retaliation from your own government for telling Congress about the bad deeds of an agency you worked in. Correct. I spent four years uh, fighting to protect my reputation and keep my job. Um, so in the end, I prevailed because look, the decisions that were made by federal prosecutors and the, defi- the decisions that were made by people within that group that were working that case were all documented. So in the end, I prevailed. But look, the thing that, that troubled me is, you know, I retired two years ago. Uh, I My oath didn't come with an expiration date. I think we have a duty to do the right thing and protect the Second Amendment is one of those things. And I know some folks think that ATF, um, most ATF agents are not pro-gun. That's, that's not true. I only met two ATF agents in my career that I would describe as anti-gun, one of whom almost became the director. But that's why I, I'm putting out this book in March is to tell the real story about what happened because not everybody that was involved in that case not everybody that had blood on their hands uh, was held accountable and you know it kind of got swept under the rug so now that i'm retired and i can speak freely without worrying about losing my job and the ability to feed my family i'm going to name names and set the record straight do you think uh, and i want people to take a look at the book but do you think today atf agents who are in the same or similar position to you and decide to come out and say i'm going to tell the congress that has the oversight authority I'm going to tell them what's going on. Do you think they're safe doing it today? No, but I think that there are still folks who will do it because they believe in the job, they believe in the mission, they believe in the oath. Um, Look, I knew that when I spoke up that it was going to be a rough ride, but I did it, and I'm not special. I'm just, you know, a guy who raised my hand to the people and said I was going to do the right thing. So, I mean, for me to not think that there are others that would do it, um, would, would be, I guess, maybe a bit arrogant and I think a, a bit naive. Mr. Forcelli, remind my audience again the name of the book because they're going to want to read the whole story about how Fast and Furious came to the public and about the people behind it, including most especially you. What is the name again? The name of the book is The Deadly Path, and the subtitle is How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels. It's available on Amazon now for pre-order, but it'll hit the shelves on March 5th. And I would love for your folks to read it. And, you know, I have told people I'm an open book. If people have questions, <laughs> um, reach out, and I'm happy to set the record straight. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm honored to be here today, and I appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to reading it, Ms. Forcelli, and thank you so much. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great day. That is Peter Forcelli, the ATF whistleblower who blew the whistle on his own agency. The story is coming out in his book in a couple of months. Glad to be with you and uh, wish I was at SHOT Show, but I'm not this year. Uh, we'll be back in future years. We'll be glad to take your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Thank you. 
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And in full disclosure, I own guns. I believe in the Second Amendment. When I'm away from my home, I carry a gun. When I'm at home, I have a gun. So I definitely have a dog in the fight when it comes to issues involving the Second Amendment. Gun Owners uh, of America does a fantastic job of representing people. And I don't have any dog in the fight there. But I like Monty Bowen with Gun Owners of America. Uh, Monty, welcome back to the program. How are you? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Hey, I want to ask you about this because despite the fact that gun regulation doesn't do anything to solve the problems of crime, we continually have people, uh, both in Capitol Hill and in the state legislatures around America, that are constantly saying if we just write some more rules uh, that we will be able to stop violent crime, which they like to call gun crime. I don't believe the gun is committing a crime. I believe a person is. I think you need to control persons, not guns. But can we expect that Republicans are going to actually stand up and have a backbone when it comes to fighting some of the efforts of the Democrats and Joe Biden in particular to try to put more restrictions on the civil rights of Americans? Well, and that's the whole thing is trying to get that the you know, we've got to get the true Republicans to stand up because we have so much misrepresentation in the rhino part of it. And that's the that's the scary part is that we don't know who is on the rights of the common person and we fight that on a continuous day-to-day basis, and, you know, we really have to work together on getting the right people and not just voting on emotions and names. You've got to get the right people that are for the American people because you're exactly right. Gun control only stops a law-abiding citizen. It does nothing for the criminal. Well, and the other concern I've got is not so much the Congress, because I am worried about the Congress and about whether Republicans will show a backbone. And when the Democrats say we want to, you know, control this or control that, uh, I worry about the the Republicans actually having the state, you know, stick to itiveness to say we're not going to allow that. And they still control the House of Representatives. So that is possible, even if they don't control the Senator Joe Biden. But I also worry about the bureaucracy. Because so much of the bureaucracy, like the ATF, has decided to go to war on Americans, and they're an executive branch agency under control of Joe Biden. So when he says, and and he's done this recently, he's gone after gun dealers around America trying to put out, put as many of them out of business as he can. And I think you and I have talked about that. We've literally lost thousands of FFL licensed dealers in the last couple of years uh, because because they're adopting a hard standard not approved by Congress that says we'll put you out of business if you make a simple type typographical error. How do we fight back against that? You see, that was the whole point of us doing the ATF defunding program and really trying to push hard on that because the ATF really has turned their back on the American people and they're making up laws and regulations and making people criminals overnight. They do not have the authority to do so. Congress is the one that makes the laws. That's why we push hard against that. The ATF funding expires on March 8th, and, you know, the Republicans are going to have to, if they reauthorize the gun control attacks with the F, F, with the ATF, they're going to have to get something out of it, and they're going to have to look long and hard because they have attacked our FFLs tremendously, even like even the statewide state in Washington. Washington's coming after the Washington state's coming after the FFLs based on their buildings and wanting them to have certain degree of of building structure and security. And this right there is an added cost when they've already hit them with an assault weapons ban, which we are fighting in the Seventh Circuit and hopefully getting our chance at the U.S. Supreme Court on that one. Well, about that change, because there's a good example of where Democrats will say, as they have in that case, they've said, well, we want to have more security. 
But then then you find out that the devil's in the details. They, you say, what do they mean by more security? And they say, we'd like every gun store, and this is actually their proposal, every gun store must record all audio and all video inside all parts of any store that sells firearms. And you say, okay, how many cameras? Uh, a lot. And how long do they have to keep the video and the audio? And the answer is six years. Now, most police body cam video is only kept for 90 days, but they want the gun store to keep it for six years. And you say, well, look, I know that storage, you know, computer storage is a lot cheaper than it used to be. But I've seen estimates from small stores that say to store, say, a 2,500 square foot store. So a 50 by 50 size store, 50 feet by 50 feet. We're not talking Cabela's or Sportsman's or any of those. Um, that's going to take us, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to put in the cameras, to put in the uh, the recording devices, to put all the records in a fireproof safe. We have to put all of our paperwork in a fireproof safe every night. And gun stores generate thousands of pages of paperwork. And you have to store all the guns every night. Every gun has to go into a fire safe and then be taken out every day. So they say, all we're doing is asking for more security. Except when you talk to the people who run those stores, and I have, they say, if we were to do this, our costs would go up for a small store by about a million dollars the first year and hundreds of thousands of dollars every other year. It doesn't pencil out. We will have to shut down. So it's a gun. It's a de facto gun ban where... (laughs) Everybody in the state that adopts those kind of rules will say, you have a right to own a gun. You just can't find a store where you can actually buy one. Well, see, and Lars, and that's the way they're attacking. They know that once all of our lawsuits for all these assault weapons ban and high-capacity magazine that they call bans, once we get to the U.S. Supreme Court and they rule under the context of Bruin and Heller, they know dang good and well the only way that they can do it, because they're going to lose that long-term battle, is to try to put the FFLs out of business. They're using the ATF to be a no-tolerance policy on simple lines and marks and abbreviations, and then they're going to use their their state legislation to tax ammo out of control or, like you said, make such stringent um, circumstances on the FFLs that they literally are going to be put out of business by state laws and by federal laws. And then what happens is, even if you say, well, one, you know, in a, in a couple of years, we'll be able to get to the courts and the courts will throw this out. And you say, and by that time, all the stores will be gone. I mean, they will be gone because the financial pressure isn't just a little bit. It's enough financial pressure to, in, in, in the minute the store owner looks at these requirements, as some of them have, and says, hey, these requirements are going to cost me $800,000 the first year. I don't have it. I can't possibly pass that cost on to my customers, so I might as well close down. So the requirements never go into effect effectively because the gun store just says, we're going out of business. And and if, and if somebody says, well, Lars, you can still buy a gun out of state, I've done that, but it has to be transferred through an FFL licensee in your state. And if there aren't any, you literally could find a situation where the U.S. Constitution says you have a right to own a gun. If you can find a way to buy one and get it into your state, and if you can't, well, then your your Second Amendment rights are effectively gone. Well, you know, Lars, that brings up a good point. Our Second Amendment is the only one of our God-given rights that is not transferable from state to state. 
Yep. And we need to take a long look at that because this is exactly where they're going. This is the Democratic 100-year plan, and it's to disarm America. They do not like law-abiding citizens. They come out in open open statements all the time talking about how gun control will not stop criminals from committing crime. But yet they still attack the law-abiding citizen. Me or you are not out committing crimes. We're not out doing heinous things. And we're responsible, active gun owners that carry, and we're out there to protect ourselves, our families, and other civilians that can't defend themselves. And we have to take a stand. And if we don't do it on the grassroots level, and if we don't get active and get into these organizations and make a difference, your time is something you'll never have back. But I promise you, if we lose our rights to defend ourselves and own guns, we're going to lose a lot more than just time. Yeah, I think you absolutely are right. Thank you very much. That's Monty Bowen, who is with the Gun Owners of America. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the list. We always do, always have, always will at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at lawrencelarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. Yes, you'll see I have a face for radio. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. (laughs) This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get to some of your phone calls here in just a moment, but I want to ask you about this. It has been true for at least the last six months that I know of that illegal aliens have been allowed to fly on American commercial airliners, oftentimes with people like you, who are also flying on them. Except that when you get to the airport and you show up at the TSA security line and they say, I need to see picture ID. If you say, I forgot my driver's license at home or I forgot my passport, whatever picture ID you are going to use, they're going to tell you you can't fly without picture ID. Now, I think there is a process if somebody were mugged or lost their wallet or whatever. But the bottom line is most American citizens are treated like second-class citizens compared to the way that illegal aliens are treated in Joe Biden's America. Because we now have millions of illegals in the country and at least 400,000 of them are allowed to get on a commercial airline flight with no picture ID whatsoever. And the only thing they check is they ask the illegal alien, what is your name and what is your date of birth? Well, when the illegals come into America, oftentimes they're throwing away their picture ID because they're actually from Cuba or some other country, and they don't want CBP to know where they're from, so they throw away their picture ID. When the CBP encounters them, they then say, who are you? And you could literally say, why, I'm Joseph R. Biden, and I'm from Guatemala. And they would write that down. That goes into the system. And when that illegal shows up at the airport, then they say, what's your name? And you say, my name is Joseph R. Biden, and I'm from Guatemala. And they say, yep, sure enough, that's what the record shows. No picture ID. And they take whatever name was given to the Border Patrol when they intercepted this illegal alien invader. 
And now that becomes his official identity without any picture or any government idea connected to it. I think that puts American lives at risk. Anyway, before I get into more details on that, I want to invite you to the conversation. It is the best conversation in talk journalism. You find it right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, haven't any good naysayers, haven't had any naysayers today, uh, why we're willing to have you on the program and we'll put you first in line. Just be prepared for a few questions about whatever it is you disagree with me about. So you want to join the conversation? 866-439-5277. If you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. We changed from a Twitter poll to the poll on X, since that's the new name of Twitter. The poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. But I'll give you more details on that in a moment. I want to grab a couple of calls. First of all, let's go to Pinball. Hey, Pinball, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Okay. I don't know much about politics except maybe high school civics. Now, first of all, I have like three questions to the same subject. Number one, how do you get a job on the election commission or counting the votes? Or do some states, and is it legal? to hire an outside CPA firm who, as you would say, has no dog in the fight just to count the votes. Like, I own a business, you own a business. It does. Arizona, for example, Arizona in Maricopa County, for example, uses an outside contractor that actually counts the votes. Do I think that's legitimate? No. Do I think there's a political Mm -hmm. bias? Yes. And I would base that on the fact that Maricopa County has, which is 62% of Arizona's population, has used an outside company. It was a company that used to print handbills and church newsletters and things like that. And then they found out that printing ballots and making ballot counting machines were a lot more lucrative. So they went that direction, except that the owner of that firm makes huge contributions to the Democrat Party. So do you think I should be suspicious? Because when you hand it off to an outside company or outside firm and you say, but we don't have to worry that they'll be politically biased. Pinball, I think you're severely mistaken when you think that they're not Mm. going to be biased. And and it could be biased either way. In this case, uh, the the, the owner of that company actually makes uh, big contributions to the Democrats. And then all of a sudden, Democrats win in an otherwise conservative state like Arizona. Do you think I should be suspicious? Yes, but I would think that, like, say, okay, you've been being business. Okay, most of the money you don't even handle goes straight to your account, your accountant. And if your accountant says, okay, you have this much profit, this much loss, this account's receivable, this account, they have no dog in the fight. Yes, they do. They know. Yes, they do. And, Pinball, okay. let me tell you why. If you are living in a liberal state, California is a good example, and you're in a liberal county, and the county commissioners are mostly Democrats and liberals, who makes the decision which company gets the job counting the ballots? Well, that would be a bunch of Democrats. Mm. And do they take campaign contributions? Why, yes, they do. How can you make sure that they think well of your election-counting company? Well, you make some contributions to those Democrats. Maybe you make sure you have a lot of Democrats on your staff, and they understand that you're part of their team. So even that, where you say, well, you don't know where the money's coming from, If the money is coming from government pinball, you better know where it's coming from. And if the government is run by liberal Democrats, you know exactly where it's coming from. I appreciate the calls. Thanks. Let's go to uh, Angie in Nevada. Hey, Angie, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? I just want to make a comment regarding the unions. My husband and I work at a 
a union print shop in our town. And so we've been members of the union. But what I find is that most union members tend to be more Republican, but the union leadership seems to always endorse Democratic uh, Democrat candidates. So I just wanted to make that comment and see what you think. Well, I, I think that overall, I, it, there, I know certain trades or certain uh, bargaining units that are mostly conservative people. And then you have this mystery, Angie. And, and here's the mystery. What generically, what is a union for? What is it supposed to do for you if you're a member? Well, for me, the benefits are great. Even though they cost, a, you know, quite a bit of money, you do get uh, opportunity for a really nice benefit. Okay, but that's package. not what I'm asking. Um, are, is the union supposed to represent you? Yes. Okay. Now, yes. if you're a conservative, why would you ever hire a liberal to represent your point of view? Yeah, that's exactly my point. Well, because the union members simply take it for granted. They say, I'm in this union. Uh, I, I joined when I came to work here and I don't know nothing. And so I don't, you know, so the union takes my money. They spend a little bit of it on representing me and they spend most of it on politics and they give it mostly to people that I completely disagree with. I just ask Andy, mm -hmm. with due respect to people who are in unions, how dumb would you have to be to say, I've hired somebody to represent me, and he takes most of the money I give him, and he gives it to Democrats that I completely disagree with? Why would you ever do that? No, I absolutely agree, and I hope that's something that can change. But It can change, but union, union members have to wake come. up. You have to stand up at a union yeah, meeting and say, hey, this year, since most of us are conservative Republicans, we'd like most of our union money and political donations to go to, to Republicans and conservatives who will actually represent us. And if the union says no, then vote them out of existence. Angie, thanks for the call. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Do you know a veteran in need?